The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So welcome again. For those of you who are new, my name is Mark Nunberg and I'm the guiding teacher here at Common Ground. And I mentioned right at the beginning for those who came in late that once a quarter we come together and we do the Refuges and Precepts recitation. This is an ancient ritual that uh, people do in all the different uh, places around the world where people are practicing this path of mindfulness, of wakefulness. <clears throat> and uh, we do it too as a community once a quarter. So I want to talk a little bit about that. And uh, specifically to reflect on uh, aspiration. It's a word we don't hear about too much. It's one of those things that just because we don't actively think about aspiration doesn't mean we don't have one. <clears throat> and uh, part of our job is really to make what's unconscious conscious. Because we may be living our life with all kinds of aspirations, all kinds of goals, but if we're not conscious of them, well, we have no way of knowing whether this is really what I want to be setting in motion. And one of the things, you know, just starting to pay attention in life, we notice what a mind-created world it is. How much of our experience arises out of the way that we think, we relate. You know, and this can always sound a little bit like magical thinking. Okay, so if I just visualize being wealthy, I'll become wealthy. Or if I visualize the right person coming into my life, the right person will come into my life. Often, people are mistaken. It's like as they uh, w uh, really want something, what they're really setting in motion is neediness. It's like what they're reflecting on is I'm needy because I need somebody or I need money or something. And that's what they set in motion, being needy. If they, if one of us, if I, think about my neediness day in, day out, well, I'm going to start feeling more needy. It's going to feel more real. It's going to become more of my reality. So it's important that we understand the power of aspiration and how it works and how it doesn't work or the sort of danger side of aspiration, how it maybe even often goes bad. I was looking through some of my notes today and uh, I have this file that I've been keeping now since the mid-80s on uh, examples of spiritual teachers gone bad. <laughs> Our spiritual organizations gone bad. And there's a lot. <laughs> and it, 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 I think it's really, uh, it speaks to how what happens when our aspirations maybe get uh, out of balance. Like we really want something to believe in, want something to take care of us, sort of falling into the mode of being a spiritual child looking for a spiritual parent of one sort or another, whether it's a tradition, like Theravada Buddhist tradition, or a teacher, or an organization. and. Uh, idealizing it. Any kind, I mean, we can even do this wrong diet, like this diet is going to save me, or this relationship 
this partner is going to save me. Just if I can only really connect with him or her. So we can idealize, we can take any object basically and put it on a shrine in our mind and create problems for ourselves. And human beings do this all the time. We all do this all the time. And this is something we want to be aware of. That you know, whatever your participation is here at Common Ground and with this path of mindfulness, that if you don't turn it into some kind of a false god that you worship and then expect to save you and then get bitterly disappointed when things don't work out the way that you want them to work out and then become really cynical and don't believe in anything, which is a belief system, of course, too. <laughs> you know, I'm the one who doesn't believe in anything. It, it drives it drives sort of more um, traditional or fundamental Christians, Jews, Buddhists, or whatever, a little nuts when people are sort of fundamentalist atheists, but don't realize that that's a belief system too. You know, the belief that there isn't anything, as opposed to the belief that there is something, or Buddhists believe that <laughs> belief that there isn't anything, but that's worth believing in, <laughs> something like that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> And that's really what this ceremony that we do once a quarter, or some of us do it every morning, you know, at the beginning of the sit, we reflect on our aspiration in this traditional way. But the three refuges are really bringing to mind, it's an active exercise where we bring to mind what is it that's worthy of aspiration. I mean, we can't really live, as I mentioned earlier, without a goal or an aspiration. because. Just because we don't have a conscious aspiration doesn't mean our life isn't being guided by some view. It's still being guided. It's just we're unconscious of what we're worshiping. You know, we think, oh, I don't worship anything. But we worship money or we worship people liking us or we worship all kinds of different things. So, you know, you can see that at least once a quarter, we should, like right now while I'm talking, we should bring to mind, well, what are my aspirations? What do I take refuge in? What do I think is worthy of taking refuge in? Worthy of my trust? What is it that I know, at least uh, on the surface, seems truly good and useful and helpful? Because, you know, that's what we'd want to take refuge in. That's what we'd want to orient our life around. Otherwise, we just get blown in the wind, you know, where someone's got a new outfit, and then we take refuge in getting a new outfit like that person, and then, you know, something else, you know, and we take refuge in that. And, like, someone tells us about a new TV series, and then, you know, it's like, this is going to save me for a while. And we, we become a fan of this new thing, or a devotee of this new thing. And we're always a little bit afraid to look too deeply at what we're devoted to because we're afraid we're going to undermine the sort of feeble refuges that we have. So we, we kind of have this pact, you know. I won't ask you to explain why you do what you do and what you believe in if you don't ask me why I'm so devoted to what I'm devoted to. And we kind of allow each other to have these, I guess, neurotic you know, addictive relationships to people and things. 
you know, people become obsessed about different things, and we just think, well, that's just who they are. They're the person who's obsessed by biking, you know, and they, they got three bikes, and they've got all the clothes, and they're planning their trips, and they're recalling their trips, and, and you know, that's a relatively wholesome, wholesome obsession. But we all have these kind of things that we kind of define our life by. Even being a Buddhist or being a Buddhist practitioner can be just another thing to define our life by, another kind of, you know, something we put on a throne, basically, in our mind, or a shrine in our mind that makes us feel better, that kind of makes us feel like somebody. Well, I'm the guy who goes to Common Ground, or I'm the guy who talks a lot at Common Ground. So what is the value of an aspiration? Well, you know, once we start getting a sense of how potent our mind is in creating our reality, then it's like we realize this is not something that should be done unconsciously. The mind plays such a central role in the kind of life we live, we want to make this really conscious. We want to be aware of how the mind is participating in the moment so that we can train it to participate in the moment in a way that really supports our well-being and the well-being of others. So this is the beginning. And, you know, in, in the Buddhist formulation, we call this Buddha. You know, Buddha, wakefulness, is this, uh, you know, in the most simplistic way, it's this aspiration to be free. I mean, that's what the Buddha represents. I mean, including the, the statues you see around. The idea is that there's somebody who's sitting up right in the middle of their life and totally released. I mean, that's what the image is supposed to represent. A human being that can be fully present, intimate, not afraid of life, and at the same time released, not burdened, by the life he or she's living. So you can call that whatever you want, you know. You don't, Buddha is just a word that means awake. <coughs> That's what the word Buddha or Bodhi means. It's just wakefulness, the one who's awake. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, it's, you know, it's nice, it's, it can be nice to have placeholders as long as we understand they're placeholders. So to have a statue or to even have the story of this guy who lived 2,600 years ago, Siddhartha, the guy we call the Buddha. There's nothing wrong with having this placeholder. You know, this is a guy who uh, did what I aspire to do. You know, somebody who realized how to be right in the middle of things and fully, the heart fully released, unburdened by life. Not that he had a perfect life, but he was perfectly unburdened by the life he had. That's the idea. So that's something we can aspire to. And you know, if you might think, well, that's pie in the sky. I mean, how can we aspire to be in life but not burdened by it? Well, we definitely know how to be in life and be burdened by it. We know how to move in that direction. I mean, we know if we get more and more attached, more and more identified, more and more sort of taking sides, I want this to happen, I don't want that to happen, we know we'll get more caught up, more tight, more burdened, more suffering. So if we can move in that direction, why can't we aspire to go in the other direction? And why not have somebody or some word that represents the nth degree of going in that direction? 
as long as we don't get confused by it. You know, confused by it means that we feel like somehow worshiping that idea, you know, this nth degree idea, is how we get there. The idea of an aspiration is just like a beacon to know the direction we want our life to move. That's the point. Not to worship the nth degree, whatever, whatever you want to call that, God or Buddha or you know, Mother Nature, whatever you might sort of use as that placeholder. If you do do devotional activities, it's because you understand, I mean, if I think the reason to do devotional activities is to understand the science of it. If you, if you, if you rally devotional energy, if you develop devotional energy, you'll feel alive so you're able to practice moving in the direction you want to move. It's not enough just to whip up emotional energy, even relatively wholesome emotional energy. The joy of, of like, you know, like I mentioned earlier, we create our reality. So I could sit here, you know, because I was raised a Catholic and I had a relatively wholesome experience being raised a Catholic. I got these archetypes imprinted in my brain. So I can bring Mother Mary to mind and I can bring Jesus to mind and I can work with those images because for me they're wholesome. And I can generate a lot of positive emotion in my mind. Or I could sing hymns or chant Buddhist hymns. I can even chant Hindu hymns because I did a lot of yoga practice in my years. And I can get a lot of rapture going, a lot of wholesome joy going. But I can get identified with it too. The point of rapture, that sort of devotional energy, is to feel enlivened so we can do the difficult uh, work of transforming our habits, our mind. You know, because our habits generally, mostly, revolve around self-centeredness, and that creates a lot of suffering for ourselves and others. Whatever authentic path you might connect with, it's all about transforming our self-centered habits to something, to habits that aren't so defined or governed by self-centeredness. So all of us have this uh, this uh, real incentive to name, to create an image and not be confused by it. That, you know, in Buddhism we call it freedom. Or, you know, the Buddha was a real, uh, he was a very skilled person in terms of setting emotion a spiritual path. Because he didn't like to put too many things in the positive. So even though you hear the word nibbana or nirvana a lot, and you can imagine it's positive, Nirvana, or Nibbana is the Pali word for uh, enlightenment, but actually the correct translation is cessation. Nibbana, the goal of this path of awakening, is the cessation of greed, anger, and delusion, or basically all the different strands of self-centeredness. That's the goal. It's the mind or heart free of self-centered fear and aversion, self-centered greed and lust, self-centered Confusion, delusion, not seeing things clearly. So we use, you know, if you want to put it in positive, you can call it freedom. You know, Buddha means freedom. Being free from the afflictive emotions, the afflictive states of mind. That's our aspiration. We also take refuge in Dhamma. So we take refuge in three things. The Buddha, this is the goal. Dhamma means the place we realize the goal. Where do we realize the goal? We realize the goal in the here and now. We don't want to be idealistic, like I'm going to realize Buddha later in some imagined future or 
you know, when I find my perfect teacher, and then I'll realize Buddha. But the goal gets realized in the here and now. So the Buddha sets that up. He says, okay, the second refuge is Dhamma, the way things are, the way it is. That's what Dhamma means, or the teachings that turn the mind toward the way things are. Because this is where this present moment is where we realize Buddha. And if we get confused about that, if we try to realize Buddha somewhere else, we're screwed, basically, because we're back into some idealistic path. So we take refuge in the goal, which I think it's useful to say freedom from self-centeredness or from the habits that arise out of self-centeredness, like greed and craving and aversion and hatred and jealousy, you know, all the afflictive states, freedom from that, here and now, right in the middle of the way things are here and now. And we take refuge in Sangha. Sangha means wisdom. Wisdom as being manifested by our friends or ourselves, you know, when we're our friend. So it's when somebody has enough clarity to model Buddha knowing Dhamma. Buddha being free in the middle of Dhamma, the way things are. The way they manifest. So whenever you have a moment of being really in the moment, but not caught or burdened, not weighed down by it, then we say, you're expressing Sangha. You're expressing beautiful qualities. You're like a beacon for those around you how to be free in the moment. And that's what Sangha means. That's what we use to support our practice. We look for people, whether it's you know the teacher, you know the sort of stereotypic teacher, which is you know as far as I can tell, all the teachers aren't perfect teachers. So they're not perfect models for us. They may be good models a lot of the time, or they may be a kind of model that even when they're not being a good model, they at least know they're not being a good model. <laughs> so they say. Don't do what I'm doing because <laughs> I'm caught in greed or aversion or delusion right now, you know. But we're, in one way or another, we need the help of friends to help sort of model how to be free. Because there are areas in our life where we tend to have a lot of delusion and act out greed and aversion quite a bit. But other people won't be so caught in that particular place in life, or at least in at that moment. And then we can orient, we can kind of sort of uh, sympathetically start to vibrate where they're at. Oh, this is how you stay relaxed. This is how you stop being identified. Because this person, I know it's possible because I see this person is relatively more free in this situation than I am. If she can be free, if she can be relatively at ease, unburdened, then it's possible for this heart and mind to be more and more unburdened in this situation. You know, we're naturally inspired by these people. We see someone in the midst of cancer who's able to laugh or able to sort of have healthy uh, relationships, not being kind of caught in the dark box that is their particular affliction, you know, whether it's unemployment or cancer or uh, being single or, you know, these things that we just fear or don't want. And we see people being okay, and not only okay, really healthy and alive and free in those situations. And it can be an inspiration that what we think we need 
Maybe we don't need. Maybe this heart doesn't need to be tight about that. Maybe we can uh, have a life, live a life where we we are willing to receive whatever comes our way and work with it. So this is what we chant, which we'll do in just a moment. We chant, we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. We do that three times. And we do it in the Pali language because that's what people have been doing no matter the particular culture or language they speak for a long time. So it's just a ritual of connecting with men and women and children, of course, who have been interested in this path of waking up for a long, long time. We do it in the same language that everybody else does. So if you want to turn now to uh, page 35. And uh, somebody, can you want to be the bell ringer? It's just, you can just follow the instructions. So we'll begin with three bells, and then we chant a chant that honors our, the first teacher in this tradition, the Buddha, Siddhartha Buddha. So that's the Namo Tassa, we chant that three times. And then we chant, taking refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, three times. The Dutiampi, the Tatiampi, that just means for the second time, for the third time. And then we'll do a short reflection. So we're basically reading together everything from uh, the Namapasas, and the things in parentheses are just guidelines not to be read out loud. Then in the next two pages, we'll do the five precepts revolving around not harming. And we need five people to read Thich Nhat Hanh's comments. He's a well-known teacher today, uh, originally from Vietnam. And uh, he has some beautiful commentary on each of the five precepts or mindfulness trainings. So if I could have somebody who would be really willing to read the first one, Matt, and then Julie, you want to do two? Anybody want to do three? Yeah, is it Julie? Yeah, Julie. And then, yes, and then you can do four. And then Maria, you want to do five? Good. And for the precepts, we'll do both the Pali followed by the English, which is right underneath that. So we can begin, and a lot of us use this gesture called Anjali. You can use that if you want. Don't feel like you have to. And we'll begin with three rings of the bell, and then an Anjali, and then we'll continue. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Saranam Gachami Dhammang Saranam Gachami Sangang Saranam Gachami Dutyampi Buddhang Saranam Gachami Dutyampi Dhammang Saranam Gachami 
I take refuge in the Buddha, trusting inherent peace and freedom, the heart free from clinging. Second, I take refuge in the Dharma, trusting mindful awareness of the way things are. And the third, I take refuge in the Sangha, trusting those with wisdom and compassion who show us the way. Now beginning the five precepts. Panati pata, where amani sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I am committed to cultivating compassion and learning ways to protect the lives of all beings. I am determined not to kill not to let others kill, and not to condone any act of killing in the world, in my thinking and in my way of life. This is the first of the five mindfulness trainings I vow to study and practice them. Okay, now the second. Adina dana, where amani sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. Aware of the suffering caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing, and oppression, I am committed to cultivating loving kindness and learning ways to work for the well-being of all beings. I will practice generosity by sharing my time Now the third. Kamesu mitchachara, where amani sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from causing harm through sexual misconduct. Aware of suffering caused by sexual misconduct and committed to cultivating responsibility and learning ways to protect the safety and integrity of couples, families, and society. I am determined not to engage in sexual activities without love and commitment. To preserve the happiness of myself and others, 
I am determined to respect my commitments and the commitments of others. I will do everything in my power to protect children from sexual abuse and to protect couples and families from being harmed by sexual misconduct. This is the third of the five language trainings. I vow to study and practice it. And the fourth, I undertake to, oops, Musawada, where Amnadi, Sikapadam, Samariyami. I undertake the training to refrain from false and harmful speech. Another fifth. Sura Maria Majapamaratana, where Amani Sikapadang Samariami. I undertake the training to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants. Close with the last two items. Yidam me silam magafalanyana sa pachayo hotu. May my conduct conduce to attainment of the highest fruits of liberation. And then we read the end here. Taking refuge, undertaking the five mindfulness trainings, and practicing the way of awareness and insight. 
gives rise to benefits without limit. I offer to share all blessings and merit with my parents, teachers, family, friends, and with all beings everywhere. May this life and practice contribute to the great stream of causes and conditions, leading to happiness, peace, and liberation for all beings. May all beings be happy. That concludes. Now, some of you know we have this uh, chant book on the website so you, as a PDF, uh, so you can download it if you want. And one thing, one way people practice with it, if you know, if you really like working with those five mindfulness trainings and the three refuges, and then you find for a period of time or with a specific incident, you really violate your understanding of that, then the idea would be you take them out. In either with alone or with a friend, and you'd read them through again. So it's like just starting over again, just like when we're sitting and then the mind gets lost in distraction. We don't sit there and judge ourselves. We just start over again. We recompose the mind. We come back to the experience of the body, understanding this is how it is, and we start over again. It's the same with the, the practice of ethics or ethical conduct. We just start over again. That's the point, is to keep practicing. These are trainings and not something to kind of hold up and then when we fail to kind of throw the whole thing out. But it's really something just to keep working with. So the children will be coming in in a moment and we'll sing a couple closing songs. But until then, I'll make a couple announcements. Maybe, Laurie, you want to... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.